Welcome back to Foster Features Podcast. I am your host, Pauline Goldsmith-Johnson. In this episode, featuring Liz Sutherland, a former foster youth and author, the topic of abuse and neglect will be discussed. This content may not be suitable for all listeners. We welcome brave voices here at Foster Features, and we are tremendously grateful to Liz for braving hers. Welcome back to Foster Features Podcast. Today we will hear from Liz Sutherland. Liz is a former foster youth, author of the book No Ordinary Liz, about her experiences aging out of the system and her journey into adulthood. Hi, Liz. Thank you for joining me today. Hello. Thank you so much for having me. You are in Newport Ritchie, Florida. Is that right? Yes, that's correct. Uh, how is it going there? <laughs> That's great. Yeah. In Brooklyn, it's, um, it feels like a nice crisp fall day. So I, I guess I can't complain either. Oh, I'm jealous. <laughs> okay. Well, let's, uh, let's get right into it. Tell us, um, a little bit about yourself and what led you to write the book, No Ordinary Liz. So I am No Ordinary Liz. Um, that's how I introduce myself because I believe my story is one that is almost too extraordinary to believe. Hmm. And um, the lessons that I learned along the way, the tools that I used um, that helped me survive are the ones that I believe can help people understand what the critical point um, or where the critical point we are right now with children who are currently in the system. Hmm. Uh, I survived and thrived. Um, even when all the odds were pretty much stacked against me. And my journey began when I was five years old. Uh, my brother, sister, and I were brought, uh, well, actually sold to an elderly woman who called herself our grandmother. And um, she severely mistreated us. And even now as an adult, um, you know, I have very little information about how I ended up in that hellish existence because it really you know it was very um a severe time in my life hmm. uh, i don't know much about myself other than i was born in spain um i don't know who my mother or father is uh my name is elizabeth sutherland but i have no middle name and truly all i have to identify myself um, is a three by five piece of paper called a certificate of birth abroad. And it just states my birthday is June 9th. So it's crazy that I don't have a lot of documentation about who I am, baby pictures or anything like that. Mm, yeah, that's tough. Yes. Um, because it, I remember going to school, you know, and trying to just share pictures of your childhood and I'm reaching out for something, but I don't have anything. Mm. So, a man uh, named John, who called himself our father, had transported my siblings and I from Spain to America. He had brought us to Margaret's house in Waynesville, North Carolina, so I'm not sure if you're familiar with Waynesville, um, but it, it's a beautiful little quaint 
small town, hmm. tucked away in the Great Smoky, hmm. um, and dropped us off on her doorstep and saying only that she was our grandmother and then he disappeared into thin air. So, I mean, I don't, I don't have any memory of this man bringing us to the States. Um, and I had little communication with him from the time, you know, he brought us here mm. till, till today. Wow. So, yeah. Yeah. yeah so that's, for eight years. Yeah. That's yeah, quite, that's quite a story <laughs> to not, to not yeah. have. I mean, I, I know that as a, as a, sort of a, a general theme in foster care, it's not uncommon to not have access to your documentation or have it be lost along the way and to also not have family photos. But um, to be born abroad, I imagine that that's just an added barrier to obtaining any of those mm -hmm. things. Yeah. Oh, yes. I've searched and searched. Um, and I've, I'm, I'm continuing to search because, um, you know, I'm trying to find out who I truly am, you know, and my identity. Yeah. Um, and it's kind of hard to do that when you have little to go off of. Yeah. So, so for eight years, um, we lived, my siblings and I lived in a rusty single wide trailer, um, in a trailer park. Um, when we were living with Margaret, she never once hugged us, um, or it, we truly didn't know the word love. Um, Margaret constantly neglected us um, emotionally and physically, um, abused us from the day we arrived. And I, I truly feel like she resented us being there and she made us re kind of reimburse her for the price she paid um, using our flesh, blood, and tears. You know, she mm -hmm. took it out on us. She um, isolated us from people and from other children. And it may seem so small, but as a, as a young child and youth, um, she even isolated us from television. Um, she denied us access to food, and she would even go as far as putting a padlock on the refrigerator. Um, you know, she could have used a piece of scotch tape for all I know. We weren't going to disobey her. Right. Um, and certainly by then, we were kind of like well-trained children. Um who just constantly lived in fear around her. Um, we would spend many weekends picking blackberries uh, from the shrubs along the side of the road. Um, we would, uh, this is such a great memory for me, like we would wander down the two-lane curvy mountain road with empty milk jugs in our hand, and our goal was to try to pick as many gallons of blackberries as we could so that we could sell them to buy school supplies. Wow. And it wasn't like I wanted much. Um, I just wanted some pencils and a, a backpack, you know, some maybe some notebook paper to call my own because this way I wouldn't be having to keep asking if I could borrow a piece of paper in, in, during class because it was just a little embarrassing, you know, to show up and not have anything. I didn't have the tools to be able to succeed. Mm. Um, and, and a lot of these, so, uh, the, you know, these tiny things gave me a sense of normalcy. Like when I would go to open up my locker, knowing that that was mine and nobody was going to take it. Right. But it just made me feel like, you know, I fit in with other students. Um, so then one day I was 13, you know, and I, I, uh, I was standing at the sink and I remember washing dishes. And I only had like a few drops of dishwashing liquid because that's 
all she would allow us to use. And I just had enough. You know, I had enough beatings. I had enough starving. I really had enough fear. And I ran out of, I remember I ran out of the house or the trailer um, as fast as I could into a neighbor's house. And I begged them to call social services. Now, keep in mind, I'm 13. Mm -hmm. And usually 13-year-olds are just thinking about what it's like to be a teenager and all, you know, all the other fun stuff that comes along with it. Um, I'm not pretty sure they would be thinking about, oh, my gosh, how am I going to survive or the phone number to Department of Social Services, you know? Right. Um, But, you know, I... I begged them to call um, and let them know the situation and that if they didn't come and get us, that something terrible was going to happen. And so the next day while we were picking Blackberry, a woman from Child Welfare Services arrived, and she took the three of us into foster care. And that's when my journey began. Mm-hmm. And all along I thought I was kind of being saved, and I kind of saved my siblings and during all of this, um, but going into foster care kind of tore my family that I knew um, apart. Mm-hmm. And what I mean by that was they kind of separated us, you know. Um, I thought we were all going to be together, but my brother was taken in one direction while my sister and I went in another. And I didn't even get to hug my brother goodbye, mm-hmm. you know. It happened so fast. And the last image that I can remember um, was looking out the rear window of the car that was driving him away. And at that time, I felt like, oh, my gosh, they're taking him far away that I I can't find him again. You know, it's what it felt like. Right. So initially, my sister and I ended up um, at a group home where we shared a bedroom. Um, But that was, you know, short-lived. You know, we tried to cleave to one another and we were so thankful to at least have each other's company um, amongst strangers because we had no idea where we were or who these people were. Um, but after a week, Child Welfare Services moved us to different foster families and then just kept moving us again and again. Um, and after that, my life became so crazy. I had no idea what path I would be on from one day to another. Um, children was coming and going. I was going from home to home in one school and then another. Um, meeting different caseworkers was like a revolving door because um, you just didn't know who you were going to get from day to day. And all of a sudden, I'm 18, you know, I graduate high school and then I turn 18 on June 9th. So I always like to paint a picture of that. You know, on June 4th, I graduated high school. Um, June 9th, I turned 18. June 10th, I was on my own. Mm -hmm. Um, And people are like, so for those that are not familiar with what it means to be on your own, um, means aging out of the system, that you're no longer in the care of the state, so to speak. Yeah. Do you mind? Um, do you mind sharing what period of time did this happen for you? Was this in the nineties or eighties? Do you mind um, just sharing? This that? was. No, I graduated in nineteen ninety eight. So okay. Um, yes. 
it seems so crazy now to think about 1998 seems so far away, you know? <laughs> Sorry, I didn't mean to reveal your age. was just curious. No, no. I'm proud, to, I'm proud to be 40. And, you know, part of part of trying to figure out who I am, I'm not sure if, if my birth year is, is accurate. So um, I always joke around because I'm like, I could either be younger or I can be older, you know? Yeah, I'd go with younger every time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um. So after, you know, I graduated and it was, it was one of those that I was, oh my gosh, I'm an independent adult and that I was, I was shocked that I was no longer in foster care. Yeah. Um, I have just achieved a, leg, a legal age and there wasn't absolutely anything about me that was prepared to be an adult. Right. And just like that, I was on my own. And I think about that because the average that a person stays, you know, in the family, like a, a, an adult that lives with their parents is till they're 26. You know, the, some people don't move out. And I'm like, I was 18 and I was kind of forced, you know, here, here you are, be on your own. Yeah. Um, I barely had more than the clothes on my back uh, when I exited foster care. I had no furniture. I had no bed. I didn't have any friends. And I had absolutely no adult to guide me. Mm. Um, and of course, with all of that, um, you know, I was depressed and disconnected. And of course, I fell in with the wrong crowd because, you know, at that point, if anyone gave me any attention or thought that I was, a, you know, an important person in their life, I gravitated to it. Right. Um, and it's it was just easy to fall in that wrong crowd and, and, and spun even further out of control, you know. But then something happened and I got a job and as I began to earn money and see a future, um, I started creating a new family out of coworkers and friends. And with that, um, I, you know, I graduated high school and I was like, I want to keep going. And so I enrolled and entered um, college. So I, I did like a, a community college first, and then I, I finished that. And then I'm like, okay, what's next? Um, so then I ended up going to college. And, um, you know, by a miracle of fate, uh, I saw my sister again at a party on the very same college campus. Wow. And... A few years later, uh, we found our brother, and I and I always like to just let people know that you know, by all means, it wasn't an easy journey. Mm. I mean, I struggled to put myself through college, but I ended up earning two bachelor's degrees, um, and sometimes working as many as five jobs at once just to survive. Mm. But you know, I created a family at work, and I found the stability and loved, and then. Um, in doing so, I truly believe I work harder than most of the people I knew, and I ended up being a valued employee at one of the number one professional services firms in the world. Wow. Um, and so with all of my journey, um, you know, as I mentioned earlier, I feel like, you know, my story is extraordinary, mm -hmm. and so I wanted to share it with the world, and so um, it led me to write writing No Ordinary Liz, um, because I wanted to provide others, um, 
a glimpse of what it's like um, to take a walk in a foster youth's feet, you know, mm-hmm. shoes, um, so that they can kind of better understand a foster a foster child. Um, because they're everywhere they're in school they're in your classroom you know they may be in your church um sunday school class you know they're they're everywhere um and we're no different um because foster care doesn't define you it's just an instant that's happened in your life yeah and i you know i another sort of pattern that you know in my in my own experience um in foster care and also um as a social worker um, and in the work in the research that I do to prepare for these um, episodes is um, the the lack of connection in um, mm-hmm. among siblings in foster care. and that so for you, there was never an effort made to provide any opportunity for visits with your brother and your sister for all that time. So um, at first, yes, but then, as I was moving from home to home, I kept getting further and further away, like counties, okay. to where it was an hour away to two hours. And so it was hard finding um, people to commute back and forth. Um, you know, that's half a day of just driving to, to make it work. Mm. Um, and so with that, um you know, the phone calls and everything just kind of faded and you just started living, I mean, you're just living your life. Um, and a lot of, a lot of times I would ask anyone that I saw while I was in care, like, Hey, do you know where my sister is? Do you know where my brother is? And a couple, um, you know, there was a couple of occasions where I ended up kind of at a group home. Um, and this was so hard because I was, actually at a group home that was kind of like a, not a boarding school because it was like a school, like it was a school and living situation. And I happened to look out the window and I saw my brother playing basketball, but they wouldn't let me connect with him. And, you know, and I think about that, I'm like, why? Right. You know, he's my brother. What, what, what would have had any harm in that? None, zero um, harm. It's, it's one of the things that just, no. I, I can't get over it. I can't get over how this is called child welfare. <laughs> There's nothing welfare, welfare oriented at all about that approach. Mm-mm. So I just, you know, I just said, okay. And I had to keep living. Um, but even though I was living and doing my life things and all that, my heart was just broken because I was missing two important pieces and that was my brother and sister because, you know, we had came through this journey together and we were leaning on each other and then all of a sudden you go into foster care and you think that you're saving all of you, um, but then they separate you and then you just feel so lost. And so I'm a very big advocate today. Um, you're trying to do whatever you can to keep siblings together because um, it's tough and these kids have a hard time already. Um, but having your siblings with you, it just kind of gives you that comfort and blanket yeah. that you need, you know? Yeah. And I mentioned earlier that it was so bizarre that I did find my sister and we were, and it was by some fate because I looked at so many colleges. You know, when I was looking at colleges, and I mean, the fact that we ended up at the same place, um, just so bizarre in itself. 
Um, but, uh, you know, I share my story, and, and yes, it had a, a happy ending, but that's not the norm for kids today. You know, like they don't, I'm pretty sure they, they don't find their siblings in certain cases. And, and it's case by case, right. but um, it's just, it's very sad to me. Yeah. I mean, I've often said that I don't, yeah, I've often said that I don't know what I would have done if my sister and I had ever been separated. We were always in care together and we were adopted out of care together. And, um, Mm -hmm. I just, I mean, I am the person that I am today because of her, you know, because of our bond and our connection. And, you know, so I, I, I honestly think I would have developed into a completely different person and, and not in a good way. Um, if I'd been separated from my sister. So yeah, I'm, I'm with you on that. You know, it's really important, even if you can't keep siblings in the same home, that you keep them connected in every single possible mm-hmm. way. You have those mm-hmm. phone calls every day. You make sure they're showing up for those phone calls. You make sure that they're writing letters, that they have email access to each other. Because I, I know in my social, in my, in my, um, my social work, I, I only worked with a social worker for a very short period of time. Um, but the boys on my caseload who were in foster care, they weren't allowed to reach out to their siblings. And like, they weren't allowed to go on, they weren't allowed to have an email address. They weren't allowed to have a Facebook. They weren't, which I understood for safety reasons, but there could have been a way for them to be connected. I mean, there's all kinds of parental restrictions on mm-hmm. things like that, but they could have really used that platform to stay connected in a really real and positive way, but they were just denied and it was just like a blanket no to everything without any solution, without, you know, just mm-hmm. any second look at it to say like, okay, well, how can we make this better? How can we, you know, facilitate right. this, this connection? And it's important to them. It's important to their well-being, to their growth, to, to everything. Um, and to just drop mm-hmm. it like it's nothing. And to then, you know, not... And then to blame children for their behaviors when they're acting out in school or they want to run away or yeah. they're never happy. They're always mm-hmm. sad. Like, why do you think that is? Like, this is not rocket mm-hmm. science. So, yeah, just exactly. kind of the, the disenfranchisement and like the the robbing of personal agency that happens um, for youth in these situations. It's real and it's pervasive. And we like to think that, you know, maybe your story and my story are, are really rare. And it's like, nope, <laughs> children get abused in foster care all the time. They get disconnected mm-hmm. from siblings all the time. I mean, this is a regular right. practice. This is not an uncommon theme. So um, thank you for sharing that. I know that that's not an easy story to share. And um, I know that we've talked about, you know, sometimes when we are, when we're brave enough to share our story. It can be very therapeutic, but it can also be re-traumatizing and really hard. Mm-hmm. I mean, I know that I sometimes just pour myself a glass of wine after after having yeah. a, after talking about it, after talking about my own stuff, you know. So I really value mm-hmm. that that you came with all of that today. I think it's important for people to learn about stories like yours because it's still happening. And I was in care in the eighties, the late eighties and early nineties before I was adopted out. And so we were actually in care at the same time, only for there was a little bit of overlap. And then you were in it for much longer than I was. Um, So I remember what the system was like then, you know, and I let I wanted to think Mm -hmm. it's different now, but it's it's really not. Um, No. And and, you know, um, it it took a it took a village to really find my brother. Um, And, you know, I 
if, if you don't speak up and you don't fight for what you believe in, um, it's there, there's so many missed opportunities, you know, and and I say that because I was um, part of an internship in Washington, D.C., mm-hmm. and, and you know, D.C., where I was at on Pennsylvania Avenue, it's very political, and so I was invited to an event, um, and it was about if you could change one thing in your state, you know, what would it be? And, I mean, people were showing stuff like Medicaid and mm. state tax and all that. And so I had no idea they were going to call my name. But they called my name, and all I could think about was my brother. And at this time, it had been 13 years since I last saw him. Mm. And so um, I used that platform, and I was like, hey, if I could find if I could change one thing in my state, which was North Carolina, um, it would be to keep, keep siblings together um, when they exit foster care because I'm still looking for my brother who I haven't seen to, to, to date. Mm. And, of course, I was crying, and I was in a room with media, and people were crying because they weren't expecting it. Right. Um, but within two weeks of ending the internship and then going home, I got a call that, they had found my brother. And so my sister and I was on a plane and we had the reunion at the New York airport. Um, but it's just to your point, it, it, it's, you know, it's very, it's exciting for me, but sad when I, when I talk about it because I'm, you know, I feel, I feel bad for those who are still searching today. Yeah. Um, and I did learn also that, I have another brother out there. Um, I don't know his name. I don't know anything about him. I just have a picture of him from when he was, I imagine, 12 years old um, that I'm trying to find. So, um, and it just questions how many more is out there. Right. Um, But it's never easy Mm. to put yourself out there and share your story. But I always say that, you know, I made it. I came out on the other side. Um, and I'm using my voice and I'm sharing my story because I want to help educate others. There's such a stigma around foster care and orphans and adoption that I want to change that because there shouldn't be. You know, we're all humans and we all um, are living life and breathing life the same as each other. It's just, again, like I mentioned, you know, your circumstances are a little different. Um, and I want to also mention that I couldn't get adopted. So when I turned 18, I aged out, and I couldn't get adopted because, again, I don't know who my parents are. So therefore, my parents couldn't terminate their rights for me to be put up for finding my forever family. Mm. So um, another piece of unnecessary bureaucratic <laughs> red tape, right? <laughs> yeah, um, and it's so bizarre because I think about it all the time, like, oh my gosh, I don't have a mom and a dad, you know. And I'm 40, and it still bothers me that, who do I belong to? Um, but again, I'm just one of many that searching and asking for the same thing. Yeah, you know, I've t- I've had this conversation with my mother repeatedly about how, you know, like, you need your, your parents for your whole life. You know, you don't get them for your whole mm-hmm. life. But what you get from mm-hmm. when you're a child into your adulthood, like when your parents are gone, like that stays with you, that connection, that love, those memories, you know, mm-hmm. they're really important. They're really necessary um, for our, for our own personal growth and, and nurturing and, and sense of self and love. And, you know, I, 
my mom has has said to me on several occasions to my sister as well that she felt like we needed her more as we were entering adulthood than we did when we came to her. So, and we came to her at ages 12 and nine, you know, and she said that she kind of felt like we just plopped into, into life. We just started, you know, going to school, doing after school activities, making friends and it all seemed okay. And then we turned 18, we started going away to college, we started working and, and then it was like, you know, crying phone calls at, you know, two in the morning, mom, I think something's wrong with me, you know, (laughs) you know, so it was like then that she felt like, oh gosh, I've been waiting forever for you guys to need me for something. So, you know, you, you need your parents in your adulthood and, um, it's just, it's just as important. So yeah, I'm, I'm sorry. That's, that's a hard thing. Yeah. But you know, and I get questioned all the time, like, how are you such a positive person? And, you know, Mm -hmm. I get that too. You know, I'm hardly a negative. I hardly do anything negative because, and I just, you know, I think, and for me, and I think a lot of kids that while they're struggling today is they blame themselves for the situation that they're in. And a long time ago, I did blame myself, you know, but then I took a step back and I'm like, you know what? I didn't ask to be abused. I didn't ask for any of this. Um, And so it's not my fault. And you only get one life to live, and so I wanted to do whatever I could to have a chance at a life that I wanted, you know, and deserves. And so I try to help these kids today realize that it's not their fault, or they didn't ask for this, um, and it shouldn't put an impact or weigh heavily on them to where they feel like they're not worth anything, you know? Right. Um it's tough. It's a tough, you know, life. And I mean, especially the teenagers. Um, I feel like, you know, your teenage years are the most important years of your life. And I entered the foster care system at that pivotal time, um, where I was just welcoming my teens. And, um, you know, I felt so lost and empty and, 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 unconnected um, from who I was that that was such a scary feeling um, and so I just want to do what I can so that, that teens and our youth um, don't lose sight of who they are right I mean and being a teenager under the best of circumstances having both mom and dad in the house still married not abusive not neglectful I mean teen years are so cruel <laughs> Um, you know, so when you're, when you don't have connection, you know, when you're suffering from chronic disconnection and knowing that all you're waiting for is to age out into a world that is also mm-hmm. offering you nothing, just that, like that chronic trauma of just waiting, mm-hmm. like watching the clock tick down to an even potentially worse situation than the situation that you're in. And I think that that's something that's not talked about enough about how that it, it you know you're you're right about the teenage years being so important because that's when we're our brains are are growing and our personalities are developing our coping skills and styles are developing at that time and to be going through this chronic pervasive trauma while that is happening to your body and in your body is so mm-hmm. impactful 
I mean, there's been a lot of studies conducted on it, but I feel like it's no matter what evidence we have to show the damage of that, the child welfare system is not being informed by it. It's not taking its cues from that research. Do you find that to be true in, in the work that you are doing and do. advocating? Yeah. Mm -hmm. I do. And I, it just blows my mind that, you know, every day there's more kids entering the foster care system, but our agencies and our case managers, their workload is just through the roof. Mm -hmm. And it's like, how can you have enough time to dedicate what you need to for each of those case files? Um, there's got to be something that we can do. The system, yeah, the system is it's broken. Um, and regardless of what state you're in, um, we all are fighting the same battle to some extent. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah. Yeah, and I actually had a conversation last week with um, with a policy advocate um, in, in Massachusetts who made a really interesting statement that I will probably use repeatedly throughout the season um, of this podcast, and that is that the institution of foster care is very good at protecting itself. And that's a problem. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm, I'm not sure if you read about it in USA Today, but last week there was an article about a foster dad um, who had been, who had sexually abused and neglected several foster children that had come through his doors and that there had been mm. reports about this and still social services continued to send children to his home. He even adopted one of those foster children, um, a five-year-old girl and sexually abused her um, for her entire wow. time before, until he was arrested. And, and now he's, now he's in jail awaiting um, his trial. And I thought, okay, great. I'm glad that he's, you know, being held accountable. However, what about the agency that put those children there? What, why, what's happening to them? And I can almost guarantee you absolutely nothing. And like, that's, that, that's, that's a problem. I mean, that's the biggest problem. Uh -huh. You know, you can't take children out of abusive and neglectful situations and put them in another one and then wash your hands of it. No, there, there's gotta right. be some accountability here. And I think that the, the system knows how to escape that brilliantly. And we, we have to, we have to change that. I, I don't know exactly how we go about it. I don't think that we can just stop at policy. You know, I think that we kind of have to like burn it to the ground and rebuild it, which is a terrifying thing to say, but the system's abusing children. So I, I'm not sure like what we would want to save about that. Um, if you have any thoughts on that. No, it's, it's, um, you know, to piggyback off what you just said, it's, um, just trying to think how, 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 and it starts, you got to start with, from within and be honest and, and take a, like accountability yeah. for those actions and be like, you know, yes, this happened, but what can we do to prevent it from happening again? Mm -hmm. And A, you don't send kids back in that home. You remove, and B, you remove those kids that are currently in those homes, you know, and like arrest the people and um, kind of look for patterns um, in other homes. And, and, you know, I get it. Foster homes, um, you know, there's, enough, there's not enough homes for the kids that are in care. So sometimes I feel that 
while there's so many different things in play um, and confirming that homes are good, right. um, there's areas and, and ways that things are missed. Um, and unfortunately, you know, signs and stuff are important. And we don't want to put those kids in there. Yeah, and so somehow it's illegal if a if a birth parent is neglectful or abusive, but not if a foster parent is, you know, and that the system yeah. is not is not you know thinks that they're not culpable here, and um, and that's problematic for me yeah. as a as an advocate, you know, um, like why yeah, wasn't that agency I'll... named? Why wasn't you know like I, I want to know who those caseworkers were who were who knew about this and continued to send right. kids there. I want to know, right? And I think the public has a right to know. That. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and for me, you know, not all foster homes were bad, mm -hmm. um, but there was a couple that it felt like um, they were warehouse and children. Like there was like 10 of us at a time. Yep. I was and in that foster home, so I know exactly home. what you mean. And and we were like sleeping on the floors. We were just sleeping and eating, whatever, because the foster parents would just lock themselves up in a, in a bedroom. And I remember chain smoking away and didn't have a clue about what we were doing or what our needs were. Mm. And there were, there was numerous times where I went to the agency and begged, you know, Hey, I want to be removed from this home because it wasn't benefiting me or doing me good. But my voice wasn't hurt, you know? And so I acted out as like I was crazy, you know, just to, just to get out of that home. Mm. Um, but it's just it, it's just tough because you know you're a youth you may not know what's best for you but the agencies you know I feel like we've got to come up with a better system and really take the time to know these kids and what's best for them because um, it's not it's it's just it's not right you know to put them in situations that could cost them their life potential. Right. And certainly has. And it goes mm -hmm. it goes unspoken of, you know, young lives are mm -hmm. are taken and and it's swept under the rug and that's that's also not okay. So speaking of foster yeah. homes and, you know, and not focusing on the negative ones, but thinking ahead to, you know, anyone who might be listening who is interested in becoming a foster parent or someone that's already in the process or even someone who is currently fostering, what advice or, or knowledge would you like to share with that parent? Uh, you know, first I just want to say thank you, you know, um, thank you for taking a child in who has absolutely nowhere else to go. Um, I know that there will be challenging days um, because the children that you're inviting into your home have been battered and bruised mm -hmm. by their lives, you know? Um, and they are going to be slow to trust. They're definitely going to be reluctant to open up. And they are always going to feel like they're expected to be let down. That's just how it is. Mm -hmm. um, but as a foster parent, uh, or a mentor, whoever you are in this, that's pertaining in the foster care system, you can change their lives. Um, and I always am a true believer that even if you're only a part of it for a short while, 
um, you, you can make a difference. Um, I truly believe that foster parents are extraordinary individuals who are put on this earth to give children a second chance at life. Um, and also we, as society, if you're just listening to this, just because you just want to learn more, um, we definitely have an important part to play in the, in the lives of these children who are put through the foster care system. Um, and when they live with you, again, there's a short window of time where you can make a difference uh, for their adult life. And these children are not looking for perfect people, um, but rather people who are willing to see them just as they are and be willing to say, yes, I want to help you. Yeah. Um, and foster children are not statistics, you know. Um, they are children that have a full future ahead of them. And we have to love them and support them as you would your own child. So. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. So what's next for you? You've written a book. What yeah. What's what's next for you? Oh, that's a good question. <laughs> I, I'm searching for um, family. Uh, as I've been doing some ancestry tests. Um, again, like I'm trying to just piece together who I am. Right. Um, I have been in touch with my mother. She is in... Spain, Germany, the last I connected. I haven't had much of a conversation with her because she doesn't speak the same language as I. Um, but I'm hoping I can learn a little bit more about who I am there. I am continuing to do my part in advocating for our youth in foster care today and keep sharing my story. Um, and who knows, there might be a second book coming out <laughs> in the future that would be awesome <laughs> so tell yeah. us where where can our listeners find your book um, my book is out on Amazon Barnes and Noble um, Walmart Target and I, I really believe that if you are interested in reading the book it's a great resource I have um, some great links in there um, I have some letters to uh, foster parents, there's an amazing story about my connection with Walmart that I didn't share today, but I feel like um, it's a great part of the book. And strangers, um, I believe I've lived a life relying on strangers as mentors, as guides. Um, and I have also have a blog at noordinarylives.com, and I'm out on all the social medias. Um, such as Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn as No Ordinary Lit. So mm -hmm. I definitely would love to connect with you if you would like to chat. Absolutely. Wow, Liz, that was a lot. <laughs> Thank you so much. <laughs> I don't know how you do it. You're welcome. In, in one breath, I don't know how you do it. <laughs> so I well, want to say... Thank you so much for having me. Oh, yes. And I'd love to have you back when, um, when, you, when you have something else uh, a second part of your journey that you want to share? Because I know that there aren't enough resources out there. There aren't enough people sharing their stories. And it's why I've created this podcast. And, you know, I know that there's hundreds of thousands of us out there, but um, only a handful of us seem to be exercising our voices. So I want to 
um, invite anyone who, you know, like you, who has um, an extraordinary story to tell and there's lessons to be learned um, in what you've shared today. So I want to say thank you again uh, for joining me and for sharing your voice with me and with my listeners. And I look forward to hearing from you again soon. Thank you. Likewise. Okay. Take care. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thanks again to Liz for providing her important insights into the challenges that foster youth face and the impact of aging out of care. It's important for my listeners to know that what Liz shared today is not an easy task. The barriers that Liz and many foster youth face are so important if we are to be truly informed about how to improve the lives and outcomes of foster youth. I especially value the personal stories that shape our understanding of the human side of foster care. That is often overlooked. So thank you again, Liz, for sharing your extraordinary story with us. Thank you to my listeners for taking this journey with us today. Keep being brave with your voices. Take care, everyone.